Good morning, Waterstone. This is a bittersweet morning for me. Uh, this will be the last time that I get to preach to you. Um, two weeks from today will be our last Sunday at Waterstone. Um, then we'll head to Texas for a couple of weeks to spend time with family. And from there, it's off to Cambodia, where we plan on serving as long-term missionaries. Um, thank you. Case in point, thank you for how gracious and encouraging that you have been to us as we have lived and ministered among you. Um, and thank you for letting me learn and grow as a preacher in front of you. It's really been a privilege. And we will miss you and look forward to keeping in touch with you as the years go on. I remember the feeling of getting on the plane to do a church planting internship in Milan, Italy in 2007. Uh, I was very anxious at that time, knowing that I was really uh, leaving behind my life for the next two years. Um, I didn't know what to do, and so I prayed. And I remember learning to pray at that point more than I ever had before. Now, I am just a few weeks from getting on another plane and heading away for even longer this time, uh, doing an intense ministry there. And I know that I don't have it in my power to do the things that God has called me to do. And so I pray. Um, I pray that God would actually show up in Cambodia. I pray that he would do a mighty work there because I don't know what else to do other than pray. And so I go and I pray. I believe that most and maybe all of us in this room have something big in our lives that we, um, we don't know what to do with. We feel powerless in front of it. Maybe it's a calling from God that you don't know how to respond to. Or maybe it's a difficult situation that you're in the midst of. Or maybe you see some of the needs out in the world and your heart breaks and you want um, God to do something about that. But I believe that most of us have something that we want to ask God for. But it seems too big, too bold, too risky to even think about actually asking God for that thing. And so we either ask for it half-heartedly to keep ourselves from getting too disappointed if God doesn't answer the way we want, or we just don't ask at all. But I want to ask you this moment, this morning, if you would just take a moment and think, if you could ask God for anything this morning, what would it be? Think about that for just a moment. I want you to hold on to that thing. We're going to come back to it um, throughout the service this morning. We're in the second week of a three-week series on prayer. Last week, we looked at Luke 11, verses 1 through 4, the Lord's Prayer in that chapter. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through 13 of that same chapter as Jesus unpacks what prayer is and how we should engage it. Um, I'm no expert at prayer, um, but rather what I am is a fellow journeyer in this process who opens it up to passages like this and is very convicted about my own prayer life. And so rather than uh, me comparing my worthiness to yours or you comparing your worthiness to me, I hope that we can just learn from each other about prayer this morning. So let's explore our passage and see what it reveals to us about prayer. The passage has three main sections in verses 5 through 8. There's a parable that Jesus uses to explain prayer. In verses 9 through 10, we see some instructions regarding how we are to pray and a promise in that. And then in verses 11 through 13, there's an illustration from the family that illuminates what prayer is for us. We're going to start in the middle of that. We're going to look at the instructions and the promise right in the middle, verses 9 through 10. 
Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And these are beautiful verses. Ask, seek, knock, and there it will be. The only problem is that that doesn't seem like it's true. It doesn't seem like the world actually works that way. You know, it, it certainly doesn't work like you know, the movie Bruce Almighty, where we become God and we can will into existence anything we want. And so what is the promise in these verses? As we explore that question of what it is that we're being promised, it's going to challenge our preconceived notions of God, his character, his relationship to us, and what happens to God when we pray. It's also going to lay bare our character, our motivations, and what happens to us when we pray. First question that this brings to the surface is, why don't we pray? Most Christians who would answer that question, they would say, I don't have time, or I'm busy, or I forget, and that may be true, but it's not the complete answer, because we're very careful about the things that we choose to put in our day, and so why do these things make it, and prayer gets cut? Whatever the answer to that is, it goes beyond just busyness. We, I think that we don't pray because we doubt prayer matters, that we think that at the end of the day, our lives will go on just the same without it. Or we don't pray because it makes us vulnerable. What if speaking to an invisible deity is just as silly as it sounds, and we don't want to get our hopes up for nothing? Or we don't pray because we don't feel connected to God, and so why would we enter into this terribly intimate form of communication? We don't pray because prayer is hard, and it forces us to face our doubts, our vulnerability, and our shame. So these are the questions that we're going to have to face. If we can possibly understand what it means to ask, seek, knock, and then receive. Now let's go back to the rest of the passage and see if we can get some insight from there. We'll start at the top with the parable of the neighbor in Luke 11, verses 5 through 8. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, Lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. To understand this, we have to understand the hospitality culture of that day and time. If a friend from another city showed up at your door, no matter if it was in the middle of the night, you were obligated to give that friend something to eat. And if you couldn't, then you'd bring great shame onto your family. Now, if you were unable to feed that friend, that traveling friend, then responsibility to feed him extended to the rest of the village. If someone in that village was able to feed your friend, but chose not to do so, they would bring great shame on the entire village. And this was absolutely to be avoided at all costs. And so you see that the two neighbors have conflicting interests. The one needs bread for his neighbor. The other doesn't want to wake up his family. 
The first man risks upsetting his neighbor, but it's even worse to shame himself in front of his guests. And so when he's faced in this dilemma, he chooses knock, knock, knock. Um, either you can wake up your kids by opening the door or I can wake them up by knocking. Either way, we're all getting up, so you might as well give me some bread. And what's crazy about that is that Jesus says, that's the kind of shameless audacity I want to see in your prayers. Pray for something so big and so bold that you are scared to even ask God for it. But the alternative is worse, and so you go for it anyway. If some people knew you were praying such a prayer, they might say, have you no shame? And you would say, I'm well beyond the point of feeling that. This is do or die. I've got no choice. When we get to that point, the world calls it shameless audacity. But Jesus says, now we're talking. But here's the problem. We believe that God is even less approachable than a grumpy neighbor. And so we settle for only praying very polite prayers about things that we want but don't need. And that way, God can't disappoint us too badly. We don't actually have to get vulnerable. We, we treat God like we would a waiter. Could I please get my water refilled? Things like, bless my meal or heal the sick people, which are great prayers to pray, but they are certainly not full of shameless audacity. The foundation of this parable is shame. Rather than shame his family, the man bangs on his neighbor's door. Rather than shame his village, the neighbor answers a very inconvenient request. The man is praised for having shameless audacity. And so if the kind of prayer that Jesus is looking for is one of shameless audacity, and we're not praying those kinds of prayers, then it could be because we're still feeling trapped by the shame, by this feeling that we're not enough, that we're not worthy of connection with God and with other people. Maybe it's that we're ashamed um, to pray to a God that we can't see or hear in a world that values only cold, hard facts. Or maybe it's the shame of knowing our shortcomings, how we have ignored and rebelled against God and thinking, no, there's no way I could ask him to do something for me now. Or perhaps we carry the shame of loneliness, and if we pray these kinds of prayers, then we're afraid people might reject us. Perhaps we struggle in a particular way, and to pray for that is to admit that it is true. Whatever it is, prayer is hard and vulnerable and risky, and you don't overcome the shame by praying polite prayers, but by praying boldly. When I think of shameless audacity, I'm reminded of the process of support raising for the ministry in Cambodia. When I first found out that I'd have to raise financial support in order to do that ministry, I said, there's no way. I felt, honestly, shame and inadequacy. Um, I felt like it was wrong for me to talk to people about their money. It was wrong for me to not be independent and to actually have to ask other people for what I need. And even if all of those things weren't wrong, then I still didn't have the skills to actually pull it off. I was put into a dilemma. On the one hand, I didn't want to disturb people. On the other hand, I didn't want to walk away from my calling. And so I tell the shame, no, some days better than others. And I ask. And if I can ask people to support a ministry like that, then how much more can we approach a good and a loving God who desires to give us good gifts and to ask for the even bigger requests that are on our heart? So think back to that thing you want to ask God for. How does a feeling of shame or inadequacy keep you from asking for that? 
Have you gotten to the point where asking God seems too risky, but not asking seems even worse? If so, then it may be time to muster up the shameless audacity to pray a big, scary prayer to God. We looked at the parable of the neighbor and we saw that we face our shame when we pray to God as a persistent neighbor. So now let's go to the end of that parable, to the end of that passage, Luke 11, verses 11 through 12. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So we know across all cultures and across all times that only the most troubled of parents would hurt a child for asking for a meal. Most parents delight in giving good gifts to their children. How much more so does God? Quick aside before we move on. I think God took quite a risk when he chose fatherhood as one of the primary images or metaphors to, um, to, to show himself to us. Um, some of us in this room have absent or neglectful or even abusive parents. All of us have flawed parents who have hurt us in some ways. And so it can be a very painful thing to even think about referring to God as father. But I think that the hurt that we feel from our earthly parents, especially because it is more deep and more lasting than a lot of the kinds of hurt that we can feel, is proof that we were made to long for a father that is more perfect than our fleshly parents ever could be. And when our parents are good, they point us to the good parts of God the Father. And when our parents fail, they point us to the better parts of God the Father. And it is to that Father that we are invited to come and to pray. So even though I have good parents, I don't always think of prayer as approaching a good, loving Father who delights in giving me good gifts. See, we often doubt deep down that God is really like this. Maybe we doubt that he's even there or that he actually listens to us or that prayer makes a difference. We may doubt that God cares enough to want to answer prayer. Maybe we doubt that God could want to do good things for us because we're so acutely aware of all the ways that we have failed him. Doubt keeps us from approaching the Father. And sometimes we think that we have to overcome all of our doubt before we can pray. But really, it's quite the opposite. Doubt is one of the tools God has given us I'm sorry, prayer is one of the tools God has given us in order to face our doubt. And so when we have these doubts that God is a good, loving, and present Father, and yet we pray anyway, we face our doubts. We ask, we, we acknowledge our doubts, and we ask that God would give us a faith that is bigger, if even for a moment, and give the Father an opportunity to shine through. Philip Yancey writes this, Doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith, and I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it into the open and expose it for what it is, not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissues may grow. Doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? If doubt makes us think we can't pray, then perhaps we could start by praying the prayer in Mark 9.24. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. In that, think back to the thing you want to ask God for. How does doubt keep you from coming to the Father with that request? Have you gotten to the point where asking God seems risky, but not asking seems even worse? If so, then it may be time to 
muster up the shameless audacity to pray a big, scary prayer to God. So, we've seen that we face our shame when we pray to God as a persistent neighbor, and that we face our doubt when we pray to God as a child talks to the Father. But I still haven't answered the question that I started with, which is, how are we to understand the promise that we can ask, seek, knock, and then receive? I think the answer to that comes in the last verse of this passage. Um, You may have noticed that I have withheld reading the final verse up until now. It's because it contains a surprise ending, um, a conclusion that we weren't expecting, and I didn't want to ruin the twist. So let's read verse 13 together. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Did you catch it? The neighbor asks for bread. The son asks for fish. We expect Jesus to say, how much more will your father give you the things that you ask for? But he doesn't. He says, how much more will your father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? We believe that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who dwells inside believers day in and day out. And so when Jesus says that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask, he's saying that God gives you more of himself, more of his presence, not just near you or around you, but right inside of you. Romans 8.15 says this, The Spirit you received brought about your adoption as God's children, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us a direct channel to talk directly to the Father and deepen that relationship of intimacy with him. And so the giving of the Spirit refers to a deeper, more intimate relationship with God in which we embrace God more and more. When you pray to the Father, he promises to give you more of himself. He promises to dwell in your heart in a real way. He promises to deepen your intimacy with himself. And if you pray a prayer asking for that, you are guaranteed to receive it. And in fact, this whole passage has been pointing us to the fact that prayer is not about getting things, but it's about having a relationship. Whether it's the two neighbors or the father-son, yes, those relationships involve things, but it's not the things that are at the core of that. It's the relationship itself that is at the core. It's what makes these passages and ultimately these relationships that this passage points to work. And so when Jesus tells us that we can ask, seek, knock, and we will receive, that means nothing outside the promise of a deepening relationship with God. I've heard it taught that if you just pray hard enough and with enough faith, then these verses mean that you'll get what it is that you've asked for. And that is an intoxicating promise and one that I have certainly fell into at different times. But here's the problem. If I don't get what it is that I've asked for, then all of a sudden I start to think, well, maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I haven't prayed hard enough. The the fault must be with me in this. But the problem is that Jesus has not promised us things. Jesus has promised us a relationship with the Father. And so if we understand prayer to mean that we get things, then we miss the beauty of what we've actually been promised. Now, if you're like me, and you hear that, and you think, oh man, 
I was hoping he would tell me the secret to getting everything I wanted. If you hear that and you're even a little bit let down, and that shows that we have bought into the lie that our relationship with God is about the things that he gives us that makes us feel happy about ourselves and not about the relationship that he wants to have with us. If I go to Walgreens looking to make new friends, I'm going to be disappointed because Walgreens does not exist in order for me to make new friends. Walgreens exists so that people can go in and they can buy things. But on the flip side of that, if I go into a friendship or a marriage, or a mentoring relationship, or a small group, expecting that those people will provide me with the things that I need in order to be happy, then I'm going to be disappointed because people are not commodities and they are not here to make us happy. They are here for us to invest in mutual relationships with them, to find uh, meaning through connection with other people, mutually sacrificing for the other person's benefit. God is the same way. God is not Walgreens. We do not go in there and pay the currency of prayer and get what it is that we want. God is there in order for us to be in a relationship with him, for us to develop more and more intimacy with the Father. And he gives us prayer as the main way to do that. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come in a deeper, more real way in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is the channel through which we cry, Abba, Father. So what then does it mean to have intimacy with God? We like to think that intimacy is an emotional experience, getting some kind of Jesus tingle or something like that. Intimacy may include that, but you can have intimacy without that. Intimacy is the humility to accept God as he is, not as you want him to be. Intimacy means that we can ask the Father for anything, but that if in his wisdom, for whatever reason, he chooses not to grant the request that we ask. We still willingly and joyfully continue to serve, love, worship, and obey him. Intimacy is recognizing that if we had to choose between getting the things that we want and getting to know the Holy Spirit more, it would be our great privilege to choose God every time. Intimacy has less to do with the fresh excitement of being a newlywed and more to do with the steady faithfulness and trust of a couple married 50 years who have been through much good and bad together. So taking all of that in, how then should we pray? We are free to ask for things, even to ask with shameless audacity, but we ask for things in the context of a relationship we spend more time asking to know God than we do asking to be given things from God. We pray as Jesus did in Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours. We pray to develop a relationship with God and we pray as a way of facing the shame and the doubt that inhibit our relationship with God. As I mentioned, I'm nervous about moving to Cambodia. That's my big, scary prayer. I'm afraid of loneliness. I'm afraid of failure. Part of me wants to turn from my calling, but I choose to face my shame and my doubt through prayer. And I may still be lonely and I may still fail. I may lose everything. I hope I don't, but I'd rather go with God and risk everything, developing prayerful intimacy along the way than to stay comfortable and disobedient. And so I pray and I go.
God has not promised me that I will succeed, only that he will go with me, and that is enough. When we pray persistently to God the Father, we face the shame and the doubt and the feelings of inadequacy that keep us from prayer, and we experience deeper intimacy with the Holy Spirit. We'll now take what we have learned this morning and put it into practice by praying together. As part of this series, we want to introduce you to different kinds of prayer that you can incorporate into your prayer life if you choose. This morning, I want us to practice together the Ignatian method of prayer, which comes from the prayer life of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatian prayer is a different way of praying scripture. You take a passage of scripture and imagine that you are a character in the story. You immerse yourself in the sights, the sounds, the smells, and the emotions of the passage. And you ask yourself, what is it that God wants to tell me through this? Not as a reader experiencing it from the outside, but as a participant experiencing it from the inside. In a few moments, I'll invite you to close your eyes as I guide you through a series of questions to help you immerse yourself in the scripture passage. At any point, you're free to stand or to kneel or to um, do whatever you need in order to connect with the Spirit. Um, while I will be guiding the prayer this morning, you could easily do this yourself uh, by asking yourself the kinds of questions that will help you immerse yourself in the passage. Before we start, I want you to think back to that big, scary thing that you want to ask God for. At the appropriate time, I'll invite you to actually make that request to the Father. We'll use our passage from this morning. I'll combine the parable of the persistent neighbor with the father-child illustration. And so imagine that you are a child of God the Father and that you have come to the Father's door late at night to make a request of him that is very urgent and very important. So let's close our eyes and pray together. It's dark, just a little bit chilly. You wouldn't be out here except that you have an urgent request to make of the Father. So what is it that you want to ask the Father? You walk quickly. You can see very little, but your other senses are heightened. What can you smell? What can you hear? You're walking so fast that you trip, almost fall. A few weeks ago, even a few days ago, you would never have imagined that you'd actually be going to ask for this. But things changed. You realized you had to ask. You can't even wait until morning. Why are you so desperate to ask the Father for this? What is so important about this request? Because of the dark, you don't see the house until you're right up on it. Once you realize you've arrived, your heart starts beating. You lightly touch the door and feel the familiar smooth wood. You were so excited, but now that you're here, you feel different emotions. How do you feel? 
anxious, confused, apprehensive? Do you feel shame or doubt? Why? You know that once you knock, you can't go back. So you take a deep breath and hit the door. You want to turn back, but the door opens. The father is standing there before you. What does the father look like? Why do you imagine him looking like this? You finally manage to say something. How do you ask the question? And how do you feel now that you've said your question? How does the father respond? How is the picture of the father in your mind right now influenced by your own parents? How might your picture be different from your neighbors? How do you respond back to the father? Let the conversation go on as long as it needs to. Continue talking to the Father and letting him respond to you. How is the conversation making you feel about yourself and about the Father? If the Father decides to grant your request, how will that affect your relationship with him? What will your relationship with the father be if he deems it best not to grant your request?
What have you learned about God through this prayer time? What have you learned about yourself through this prayer time? What have you learned about prayer today? Let us pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a good, loving, perfect Father who invites us to come before you and make the requests that are in the deepest parts of our hearts and souls made known to you. Lord, we confess those ways in which we have sought you out only to get things from you and not to have a relationship with you. And we lean on your mercy. We lean on your deep grace that is patient with us and that is constantly drawing us into deeper intimacy with yourself. Lord, give us the shameless audacity to pray the kinds of prayers that you want us to be praying. And give us the humility and the intimacy to accept your answer, whatever it is, grateful that we can rest in the promise that no matter what, you will give us the Holy Spirit who allows us to continue crying, Abba, Father. God, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, whose death and resurrection makes all of this possible. Amen.